started doing stand-up. 2001, 9-11 happens. Mm -hmm. I started doing a bunch of community activism work. Yeah. There was suddenly this massive demand for Muslim speakers to just calm down scared white people churches, synagogues, libraries, candlelight vigil events, college campuses. I would get invited to be a speaker on Islam. Tell us why we shouldn't be scared. And it's a fucked up framing in retrospect, but obviously I understand this is a civilizational flashpoint and arguably the dynamic between the so-called Muslim world and the so-called West are really cultural fictions. Like, when will Muslims in Europe integrate? Yes, like, have you heard of Bosnia? Do you realize that the mayor of London is Muslim? There's all these cultural legal governmental fictions propagated. This is a big question I wonder all the time. Who controls the rhythm of the algorithm? My name is Azhar Usman and I am a modern minority, but I'm not a modernist. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're speaking with writer, actor, comedian, producer, Azar Usman. Azar is an American Muslim of Indian descent who has a lot of credits to his name. He is one of the writers and co-executive producers on Hulu's Rami. Marvel Studios recently announced that he will join the Marvel Cinematic Universe in a recurring comedic role on the highly anticipated Disney Plus series, Miss Marvel, a comic I love. And he's done a bunch of other stuff, working with Hannibal Boris, Mo Amar, Hassan Minaj, Dave Chappelle, and our friend Rajiv Satyal. Years ago, Rajiv toured India with Uzzer, and he came back from the trip and he was like, Raman, you got to talk to my friend Uzzer. And we never connected. And then I launched a podcast and we wanted to air episodes during the month of Ramadan with Muslim Americans. And I was like, I got to talk to Uzzer. So Sharon. <laughs> I'm so glad we talked to him. He is he is not only all of those things that you mentioned, he's also a pretty deep philosopher. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we went so deep today. Like literally, he he has such a unique take on the world and I think it stems from him questioning everything. We started off talking about how as a child he just had all of these questions and and I think that has led to him really asking about truth and what is true and you know what is important and trying and, to find that truth and trying yeah and actively seeking that truth. And he's hilarious, which you know, I always love having comedians on the show because I feel like they have such a they're able to find the comedy and the irony in life. And he, he certainly has that about him as well. It was a really enjoyable conversation. Yeah. So we, we hope you'll enjoy our conversation with our new friend, Azar. Azar, <laughs> welcome to the pod. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Azar, you're kind of infamous. And I guess I want to ask the offensive question we all know is coming. Where are you from? 
Well, I mean, first of all, you can't just tell a guy you're infamous. <laughs> like, what, what is the basis for you? I'm trying to become infamous, son. You're there. You're there. We, we hey, all, we, we've all heard about you. We all know your deal. <laughs> all right. Rand Paul has literally called you and a couple of my good friends out for wasting tax fire money. So, yeah, you're infamous. <laughs> the fact that Rand Paul can make somebody infamous or famous is absurd to me. Rand Paul is... <laughs> Um, all right. Yeah. I, I just don't take any politicians seriously. <laughs> the question was, I'm infamous. I already lost the question. What was it again? Where are you from? Where, where are you from? Oh my God. Where am I from? <sighs> well, and we're going to ask it five times in a row. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're going to be like, but, but where are you really from, dude? Where, where are you from? No, really? No, really? I, I have a whole bit about this exact line of questioning, by the way, getting pulled over by a cop and like, where are you from? It's like Skokie, which is the suburb of Chicago. <laughs> like, no, but where are you really from? the northern part of Skokie? (laughs) (laughs) Like, no, what's your nationality? Well, nationality is a function of citizenship, so American. Oh, no. I think you would would try to ask me about my ethnic background. (laughs) But you're an idiot. My family is from India. My parents are from Bihar, India. And they moved to Chicago before I was born. And then I was born and raised in Chicago. And... (laughs) <laughs> well, the question was where am i from that's it. yeah no no that's that's a there's no wrong answers there's only wrong people no i'm kidding <laughs> i mean how should i not that doesn't answer the question no you did man i guess what was that like i mean i'm an indian kid born and raised in alabama and the suburbs right and it was a different experience for me there was a different experience at the house on the weekends. There was a different experience at Temple. There's a definitely different experience on the bus. What were some of those different experiences for you growing up? Yeah, I think I probably had, and I think most of us, quote unquote, modern minorities, I'm sure the two of you had parallel kind of versions of, of I had this, I had a parallel version of what I'm sure both of you had, which is kind of moving within, within and between multiple worlds. And so my family, my parents, they are both from, as I said, Bihar, India, but specifically a Muslim family and specifically a Sunni Muslim family. And and for somebody who does a deep dive, they can understand the nuances and why that, what that means and what that comes from. A minority within a minority within a minority. Yeah, exactly. Being Muslim in India, that was funny because growing up an Indian kid in America and complaining to my parents and be like, you don't get it, being a minority. (laughs) They're like, shut up. We do, yes, we do get it. Like we were discriminated against and hated in our own towns. But suffice it to say that my parents were, were, are Muslims for sure, but they were very broad-minded and just always had a really kind of diverse yet not diverse group of friends because they were primarily South Asian people, but they were like Hindus and Sikhs and Christians. And my one of my dad's best friends from childhood is a Indian Christian guy, Bushan uncle. We used to drive to Winnipeg, Manitoba from Chicago to go visit Bushan uncle and his family. And then they would drive down to Chicago to visit us. And these are Indian Christian people who like church going, believing people. They had their own thing and we had our own thing. But my, our dads were such friends. They have a daughter who I kind of grew up with. And it was just an interesting perspective. And then my parents ended up getting really, they're, they're very social people. So they wanted to get organized and get a bunch of South Asian desis from Skokie together. So they started this thing called Indian Community of Skokie. And then the Indian Community <laughs> of Skokie was, was like 90% Hindu run. 
And my parents, like maybe one or two other Muslim families were involved. And then they just put on these events and then they have oh, the events. Oh, yeah, the, events. the old, <laughs> and they have the girls dancing the Bharatnatyam. And, and so that was my experience. And then on the weekend. Hey, hang on. What, what did you do at the talent show? What was your thing you had to do with the talent show? Here's the thing, man. This is so interesting because my parents, by the time they were kind of organizing all that stuff, I was getting into Islam. So this is now, let me back up. So from childhood, they were kind of connected to a lot of different communities. The South Asian thing, which had religious diversity, but then there was also the Muslim community. And the Muslim community had its own ethnic diversity. So I grew up around a lot of Arabs and a lot of African-American Muslims. and That's not a monolith. Yeah. yeah, predominantly South Asian Muslims. Just exposed very early on, I'm talking like as a little kid, three, four, five years old, to this very global version of Islam that was, oh, this is not South Asian thing. This is a global phenomenon. This is a world thing. Yeah, this is a whole universe. And then getting to meet other young Muslims at a pretty young age, my parents then were involved in a local mosque. And then that mosque had a Sunday school. So I started meeting all these, it was predominantly South Asian, but because that, that's only because the mosque was run by South Asian people. But there were, you know, mosques popping up across Chicago. And so there was the Arab mosque, and then there was the Turkish mosque, and the Indonesians have a mosque. And the, so it was like this interesting perspective that I think very early on, I, I kind of, I became, I'm a radical skeptic by nature. So as far as truth claims of coming from religion, part of me was, even as a little kid, was kind of like, yeah, but I, I, I don't know if I believe any of this stuff. This sounds like a cool story that somebody made up, but not because of some accident of birth. My parents are Muslim, so I'm going to be Muslim. I just was always very double-minded about everything and kind of like, it sounds interesting, but I remember as a, kid, as a kid, I'd go to Sunday school. The teachers are just volunteers who are like, the guy has a day job as an engineer or whatever. And he's <laughs> right, trying to teach us right. theology on the weekend. And I was a pretty smart kid, so I just would ask tough questions. And most of the time, they couldn't answer my questions. Like what? What would you ask? What were some questions? Well, for example, okay, in the religion of Islam, the way it was taught to me, there are some really major sins. These are like major evil actions that if a human being does, God will punish them. And one of those things is, is called backbiting, right? Backbiting is talking about a person behind their back and saying something that they would not want said about them. And by the way, it doesn't mean, and people will say, well, it's true. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the definition of backbiting to say something true. If you say something false, it's even worse. It's called slander. Yeah. So yeah. it's like, okay, so backbiting is supposedly this big, horrible sin. And then these people, these Sunday school teachers and just like Muslim adults I was around, I was like, yo, you guys are teaching me that this is this big evil thing, but that's like all you do. <laughs> so either, so it was like, just like my five-year-old logic was like, okay, the inescapable conclusion of this simple syllogism we're is, all going to hell yeah right. exactly either you're what you're telling me is bullshit or <laughs> y'all are going to hell like one of those two things has to be true and that just made me fundamentally question the whole idea of organized religion or religious tradition or what have you so that being said fast forward by the time i become a teenager i'd learned a lot of islam from going to sunday school but i just kind of had this body of information 
that had not really turned into knowledge because I didn't really engage with it in any meaningful way. And I was radically skeptical about it. Well, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. So as a little kid, I think we're all about the same age, 40s and 50s. Where does a little kid, this is pre-internet, man. I mean, AOL chat rooms on Islam at the time? I don't know. And where do you get that information if you can't get all the answers out of Sunday school and maybe not even your parents? How are you concerned? I I wasn't getting answers. That's why I was so frustrated, man. And then I met, finally, fast forward, not till I became a teenager. I think think that my first real experience of engaging with religious wisdom tradition directly myself, not mediated or filtered through somebody trying to tell me the nature of reality, but rather wrestling with it myself and being like, wait, hold on a minute. Is Do I really believe this? Is this real or is this just a story? And people are believing in a story and I'm just one of them. And I would say it took me a long time, man, but I would say around 14, 15 was when I finally met some people that they felt like people who had kind of worked it out. These were other young, they were Muslims, but they were quasi peers. They were a little bit older than me. I was always kind of around older people because I was one of those nerdy, oh, I sk- my parents made me skip a grade and I was born in December, so I missed the cutoff or one of those things. So I just was always surrounded by older people. And I was, even though I was like 13 or 14, these people were probably like 16, 17, 19. And they just kind of had, from my perspective anyway, they seemed to have worked out a number of big questions around how to engage with religion. And that opened up some space in my heart where I was kind of like, I want to learn more. And I actually want to learn it for myself, not being forced into it. And then I met this guy who really kind of changed my life. I'm still in touch with him. He's a white Muslim convert who is... He's one of these, like, he's a freak of nature, man. He has a photographic memory. He went deep in the tradition. He's traveled all over the world. So he he was born Mark Hansen, but he became a Muslim at age 15. And then he went and traveled the Muslim world, studied the Arabic language, studied the classical tradition. And then he took the name Hamza Yusuf. So he's a guy you could look yeah. up on the internet. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Hamza Yusuf, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, I would say changed my life. I mean, more than any other person. Because he just introduced me to, oh, yeah, all these questions you have that seem like these really clever and smart and philosophical riddles and irresolvable paradoxes. He just checked my ego so hard because he was like, yeah, you know that there's 1,500 years of people debating and discussing and dissecting and deconstructing these very same ideas. Oh, and by the way, if you go deeper into philosophical history, there's no new, nothing is new. Socrates figured Socratic method answers everything. An unexamined life is not worth living, right? The eye cannot see itself. These are all fundamental starting prepositions propositions that any thoughtful human being who just pumps the brakes and pauses on their own life for a second and asks themselves, have I ever really examined my life? What am I? Where did that come from? Why am I here? What happens to me after I die? There's only four questions, by the way. All of religion, all of philosophy ultimately folds into four questions, right? What is the origin of being itself? People sometimes mistakenly state that first question by saying, what is the origin of the universe? As we all now know, because of crypto and the metaverse and all that, it's like, well, even that question is problematic because it presupposes there's only one universe. So that's why I call it, that's why I reframed it, right? What is the origin of being itself? Number two, what is the true nature of human consciousness? 
because we're having this human experience. We are, we acknowledge that we are different than whatever dolphins or dogs, but what is this thing that's happening right now and our experience of it? Number three, what is the purpose of it all? Why does all of this exist? And then number four, what happens to me after I die? And by the way, people who have become obsessed with science, quote unquote, they, they don't even know what science is. They don't understand. They have no epistemic framework or a way to methodically and methodologically and pedagogically organize their own reflections. So we've now entered a weird state of the world where everybody is full of opinions based on no beliefs, a world of people with full of opinions with no beliefs. Like, bro, people with no beliefs trying to have opinions, shut the fuck up. What are you talking about? You don't even know. You, you can't answer a simple metaphysical question of what, how do we get here? What is this thing? Are we in a simulation? Now, Elon Musk believes, think about that for a second. The richest man on earth believes we're living in a simulation and is trying to build flying cars so we can move to Mars. It, if you don't have the lens, whatever answers you get might be framed incorrectly. Correct. There's no, there's no basic epistemic starting point to make sense of everything. So as a result, all knowledge existing in academia now, it's basically becoming activist bullshit. It's not grounded in any timeless universal truth, and it's not concerned with trying to find the truth. It's all concerned with ego games. Me, me, me. This is my agenda. No, you're wrong. You hurt my feelings. Bro, please shut the fuck up. All of these noise, this is all noise to me. Yeah, yeah. So to me, I am, obs- I am obsessed, and I became increasingly obsessed with one simple question. What is real? And to me, the definition of that is very simple. What is real is that which would be real even if I didn't exist. Who cares about my opinion? I got so frustrated. I went to law school, by the way. So while I was in law school, I'm going to these classes, and I had already gotten this allergic reaction in college because so much of college is the same thing, right? The professor gives an assignment. Go to class the next day. And then what does the whole class period consist of? People raising their hand, telling you what they think. What I think, blah, blah, blah. Let me tell you what I think. I'm like, motherfucker, I don't care what you think. I don't care what I think. Who cares what anybody thinks? What is real? What is actually objectively true? So what I came to realize is, oh my God, this is my relationship with just any information that's being presented to me is like, listen, man, can we please leave your opinion out for a second? Just tell me what is real or at least what you believe is real. And what I arrived at very simply for myself was I only believe in that which I believe would be real and is true. Even if I didn't exist, I believe the sky is blue, the grass is green, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is the messenger of God. Like, sorry, I'm not sorry. I just believe that that is objectively true, not because it's my opinion, not because it's what I think. It has nothing to do with me. If I never existed, I believe these would be objective facts. But do you think that your existence changes the truth? No, not at all. It does not change the timeless universal truth. It can perhaps change the way in which that timeless universal truth is either presented or not presented in the matrix that we call the world. But at a metaphysical level, at an ontological level, as a, at a cosmological level, timeless universal truth is utterly constant and unchanging. Okay. I accept that answer. So you must have been fun for mom and dad. Yeah, my parents, as I've gotten older, I have, now I'm on my second marriage. My first marriage was a long-term marriage. I have four sons from my first marriage. And becoming a father, my God, I will tell you what, some of the questions I got from my kids, it was like looking in the mirror because it was like, oh Yeah, there are four mini versions of you. <laughs> yeah, with different aspects of my <laughs> troubling personality. Yeah, so as I got older, I just have more and more compassion for my parents because- 
Yeah, I'm basically a borderline insane person. I want to pick on that a little bit because I don't think you are. I think, and we've already set this up probably in the episode intro, you're a comic and you're a working comic and you're a writer. And I have a lot of friends that are comics. It sounds borderline racist to say that. So my best friend. <laughs> but you guys, when done well, are seekers and questioners of truth. You just happen to wrap it up in a nice bow that makes the medicine go down nicely for us to think about it. I actually think I understand the transition from law student to comedian, but how did that happen for you? What was your truth? What was your way of getting there? Because yeah. it makes sense now, looking from the present back, having this conversation with you, but how did you get there? Yeah, it's a very good question. I mean, I often wonder myself. It's a mystery to me. You know, I never set out to become a comedian. I never formulated an intention to end up here. I certainly never intended to become a television writer. It was a very weird thing. I mean, I, I basically went to law school. I definitely had an interest in media, for sure. And I actually more recently have started to kind of reconnect with some of that stuff in my teenage years where I was made a short film with a friend and I we talked about writing scripts and I attended some media training thing and I actually did a voiceover on a cartoon movie one time. So I was dipping my toe into the world of media and entertainment, but never for a moment considered that I could have a career in this industry. So the way it happened for me was I was just a comedy fan. I... I discovered stand-up comedy as a thing maybe when I was about 12 or 13 just flipping through the channels I'll never who are the ones that who are the ones that I'll never forget the clip yeah I'll never forget the little clip I happened to catch a little clip of Paul Rodriguez Paul Rodriguez had this bit at the time I still love it and he was like I'm gonna be racist and do a Latino accent but he was just like yeah you know I got stopped at the border he called us Hispanic he goes did you know that you the Hispanic is not a real word that's made up by the U.S. government how would you like to be called an ethnicity that has the word panic in it? And I was just like, I was like 12 or 13. I was like, this shit is genius. And he's, and then he cut to the crowd and it's a bunch of white people laughing. And I was like, wow, this dude is Mexican talking about clowning the U.S. government with a smart joke talking about this word Hispanic is made up by the government, which at the time I did not know. And he was the one who turned, put, you know, turned me on to that idea put me onto the game, son. And he's making these people laugh. And he's a famous, successful, professional celebrity. Com like, I couldn't believe it. I was like, this is amazing. So that was my first exposure to stand-up comedy. And then fast forward, probably before I was doing comedy, I was up late at night. I watched so much television. My God, growing up, I would just wake up. I'm an insomniac. So my parents would- What were the shows? What were the shows back then? Oh my God, bro. I would come home from school and just watch binge after school shows, Brady Bunch. I mean, I saw all the old sitcoms. I'm just trying to think now. My, yeah, I, I was a Nick and Night guy myself. I would steal them from school. Yeah, I would sometimes just pretend to be sick. I was so bored by school. I would pretend to be sick, stay home, and then just watch daytime soap operas, game shows, <laughs> Wheel of Fortune, Family Feud. I was speaking upset. of poisoning your mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was crazy. I mean, it was, and then and then they'd go to sleep at night. I'd wake up, go downstairs, and watch late night, late night talk shows, late night, whatever was on that late at night. I was into it. I can't remember now. My God, it was like such a blur. But in any case, just mind numbing garbage entertainment. But the reason I mention all that. Is that what was that was off the thread of? Well, so, something stuck, something stuck, and that got you. I saw to, Russell. I Peters. want to tell my truth. Yeah, 
I saw Russell Peters. Ah, oh, okay. yeah. He's Russell great. Peters had done a special on Canadian television. Somehow, some way, it was on some like American PBS kind of like cheapo channel. And it was the one where he's like, the stage was made to look like a train. So the doors open in the back. He comes off the train, walks on stage, does his set, goes back on the train. And I remember that night as well, just being like, holy shit, there's an Indian dude doing the thing that that Paul Rodriguez guy was doing. And I think at that point, I had actually been to a comedy club before. My older sister and I, I have one older sister, and she and I had started going to comedy clubs just as fans of comedy. So I just couldn't believe that this existed, right? Cut to 1996, I moved to law school, to Minnesota to go to law school. And then I meet a friend who was a fellow law student who took me to an open mic. And he was an amateur comic. And then I saw him do stand up. I saw a bunch of just garbage stand up that night. And I walked home from that thinking to myself, I got to try this because, I mean, they say people are inspired by greatness and mediocrity. So I got to see great comedy that night. I saw Mitch Hedberg. Who oh, my God. Rest, rest in peace. In peace. Yeah. It was the first night, first time I ever learned about his comedy. He came through that night to just do some work on some new material. And I was like, yo, who is this guy? And so I was blown away by him. And then I also saw other wannabes and just, you know, open micers who sucked. And I was like, I can do you saw You saw yeah. the gamut. You saw the gamut. Yeah, in one night, like in a matter of an hour and a half, <laughs> saw one of the greatest comedians of all time. And probably open micers who never did it again. So I walked home like, yo, I want to try this. Still didn't have the guts. 1999, I moved back to Chicago. And then finally, and then at that time, I'm working on a dot-com startup. So I don't have time to think about comedy. And then when 2000 rolls around is when I started kind of getting bit by the bug. And I had done some theater in high school. I had been in school plays. So the whole performance bug, comedy, I just finally made a decision like, yo, I want to do comedy. I want to try it. And then I'm such a nerd. My first move was to go to the bookstore and buy a book on stand-up comedy. <laughs> so I, 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 and I, you're I, like, what I, is comedy? Yeah, what, <laughs> what how, is a joke? How, how, how to you, tell a joke on yeah, stage. Yeah, basically. <laughs> so I was always funny. You know, I could tell jokes. I could make people laugh. I love formula jokes. So a formula joke or a street joke it has a story and then a punchline. So I knew I could do that, but I didn't know how to do stand-up. And I didn't know, I didn't understand what stand-up was. And now, a word from our sponsor, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Wait, does HHS have a sweet new offer on artisanal and sustainable postmodern furniture? Uh, no. Um, okay. Then I bet our pals at HHS are totally launching a brand new true crime unscripted documentary podcast, where the U.S. Secretary of Health and Human Services solves mysteries with some sweet kung fu action and hip Bollywood moves. I would totally subscribe to that podcast and give it five stars. Uh, Well, Roman, I give up. Tell me, what's the latest from our friends at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services? Well, Sharon, modern minorities in HHS have teamed up again to remind you, our super savvy, good-humored, ever-humble, and always sharply dressed listeners, to make time for your health so you don't lose time for the things you love. That sounds almost too good to be true. Now you have to tell me how such a previously undreamt of thing is possible. What if I told you that there's no better way to do that than getting your updated COVID vaccine? I'd say you're a podcast host who has really good taste in sponsors. (laughs) You speak the truth. (laughs) That's right, dear listeners. We want to let you know that an updated COVID vaccine restores protection that has decreased over time, including protection against severe illness, hospitalization, and the worst effects of COVID. 
If your latest COVID vaccine or booster was before September 2022, it's definitely time for an updated vaccine. Yeah, I mean, spring has started. You can't be relying on last year's fashions. Are you saying that getting the updated COVID vaccines keeps you up to speed with the latest and greatest things like all the cool kids? You heard it here first. It's the must-have item of the spring, your latest updated COVID vaccines. Remen speaks the truth. Just think, with the latest COVID vaccines, imagine all the things we can get out there and do with confidence. Like outdoor taco truck parties in the parking lot of a blockbuster video? See, si, senor. Like pop-up Hollywood dance flash mobs in the town square? Not to, not to. Like dim sum making assembly lines at your auntie's walk-up apartment in Chinatown? Ni hao. Yummy. Like steampunk sci-fi cosplay at your local library? Okay. That's a bit too far. What would your kids think? Uh, that their dad is the coolest guy ever? No. Your kids are clearly not teenagers yet. All right, that's fair. But for reals, y'all, with the latest COVID vaccines, we can get back out there and do all the fun stuff we've come to look forward to and expect from the spring. COVID is still serious stuff, so we've all got to do everything we can to keep ourselves and the people we love safe. Find updated COVID vaccines at vaccines.gov. We can do this. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, who we are big fans of. And now, back to our show. Well, Azar, I want to ask, I want to ask a, a deeper question. What was the moment... Maybe you did it from the beginning. You started bringing your full self because your faith is a pretty big part of who you are and your, I hate the word politics, but your, when did you start bringing your truth to the stage? Not just- I'm still not, bro. I'm still not. I wish oh, I would. come on. We've seen- clips. No, 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 no. This is not some false humility bullshit. I have such a high standard. So I ended up crossing paths with Chappelle probably when I was a few sure. years into comedy, right? So I meet Dave in two, he quits his show. End of 2000, I start doing stand-up. 2001, I basically do stand-up for the first half. 9-11 happens in September. I kind of quit stand-up for about five, six months, just doing a bunch of community activism work. There was, there was a huge need. Kind of the way the Asian community is being attacked right now, right? Yeah. 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 We've actually been talking about that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. There was at that time suddenly like, holy cow, 9-11. If you're brown, hide. Yeah. Yeah. Does that mean Muslims are all here to kill us? So there was suddenly this massive surge and uptick in demand for Muslim representatives and speakers to just calm down scared white people. And so I started going to churches and synagogues and candlelight vigil events and college campuses. I just would get invited to be like a speaker on Islam. Tell us why we shouldn't be scared. And it's a fucked up framing now in in, in retrospect, but Obviously, I understand this is a civilizational flashpoint and arguably the most significant one, perhaps, of our time. And I follow and track the dynamic between the so-called Muslim world and the so-called West. A lot of these are, are really cultural fictions. This idea that there's, they'll always be like, when will Muslims in Europe integrate? It's like, they are. Yeah, it's like, have you heard of Bosnia? What the fuck are you talking about? Or have you gone to the convenience store or yeah, your right? doctor? Right. Do you realize that the mayor of London is Muslim? What, what are you talking about? Yeah. When will Muslims integrate? But the president of the United States was called Barack Hussein Obama. Shut the fuck up. So there's all these fictions. They're, they're cultural and legal and sort of governmental fictions that are propagated. They're, they're introduced arguably into the world by, by academia and by policy wonks. And then they find their way. And maybe this is a big question I wonder all the time. I joke about it with my wife. It's like, 
who controls the rhythm of the algorithm? We're all living <laughs> under algorithmic bias. Well, who controls the rhythm of the algorithm? Is it creators of content and culture? Is it academics and thinkers? Is it policy wonks and government instituting policy? Is it billionaires and, and just secretly funding all kinds of whatever, conspiracy I'm going to push on that a little bit. It's more insidious than that, Azar. It's us. It's our worst impulses. The, the algorithms. Control the rhythm fit, yeah, man. It's, it's candy. And you talk about light and heat. And I think about candy and vegetables. And we are all kids as humanity. <laughs> like Left to our own devices, we will devour the bag of Chips Ahoy and all the Skittles and be sick to our stomach. And that's what we're doing with these algorithms. And we're teaching them to give us what we want, not what we need. There's something about we're retreating into echo chambers on every side of the spectrum around the world, in India with fundamentalists, in Brazil and the United States. So I want to bring it back a little bit, I guess. So maybe you don't think you bring your truth, but you bring a little bit more truth to your work. I'm trying to figure out how to. I'm trying to figure out how to do that. Well, part of the journey is the journey is more important than the destination because I've consumed your comedy over the years. We have a very close friend that has been talking about you for years. (laughs) Hello, Rajiv. Hi, Rajiv. We love you, Rajiv. Oh, yeah. Rajiv Satyal has been a very good friend to me, man. And yeah. Likewise. Yeah. It's, but I guess you have lent your voice. We were scheduling this like, oh, I'm in the writer's room on Rami. And I was like, ah, that show that so many smart people have told me I'm supposed to watch. And I watched it. Started My wife and I started it the other night. I don't necessarily want to get into the show. I'm using this to pay you a compliment. You're not just in the writer's room. You are Your name is billed pretty early on in the credits. And I can see your voice in some of your story and some of your truth. Again, not just in your material, but the other things you are contributing to. And so I guess... When did that break happen? And it's not, oh, when did you become famous? No, it's when did you find your truth to... <laughs> no, I know, I know, I know. Oh, you know what? This I can answer this question. I started to answer it because it's tied in. And I, I mean, maybe it sounds like name dropping. It's, I swear to God, it's not. No, it's fine. It's because, fine. Because the Chappelle piece is actually radically affected my whole relationship with all this. And, I, and by the way, I don't think a lot of people know this. Chappelle is a practicing devout Muslim. <laughs> Am I wrong? Well, I guess it depends on how you define the word practicing because now he would uh, he would himself – he put a video out recently, right, when he was talking about – he put a video out on his Instagram, I believe, and just sort of telling the backstory of how his relationship with Comedy Central and the Spell Show unfolded. So in that, he made a comment where he was just, I'm a Muslim. And he said, uh, but you broke me, motherfuckers. I'm drinking now. And he's like on stage <laughs> holding a beer, right? Okay, all right, all right. He's, so, he's somewhere on the spectrum. He is more Muslim than I am. Is oh, listen, I'll let Dave speak for himself. But for sure, my relationship with him took for granted that we're both Muslims in this on this planet. And he just happens to be one of the more incredible artistic geniuses of our generation. And I would argue he's actually a historic human being. Like I think that Yeah, he, irregardless of his faith. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yes. He's just a historic person. His contribution, his role as an artist. So the reason I brought him up in the first place was he gave me a really amazing advice, man, over the years. And and I just was so great. I'm so lucky. I just consider myself honestly just dumb luck that I was able to cross paths with a man who's that brilliant and that giving as far as sharing advice to a young comic. And this is a cool thing about comedians and about stand-up in particular. Stand-up comedy is kind of like the bastard child of the entertainment industry. And it does attract people who are 
kind of misfits and weirdos and a lot of weird people end up in stand-up. And because we all kind of have some weird thing in common, what we have in common is that we're all weird. And therefore, there is a camaraderie and a certain type of, again, this I'm generalizing, but generally this is the vibe, which I don't find among actors or directors or writers nearly as much. That being said, some of the advice he gave me, man, about this whole bringing your truth to your art was so foundational. And it gave me at least a, a starting framework where the standard against which I'm trying to measure my own work and what I'm trying to make before I leave this planet is at least a piece of content, a stand-up hour, let's call it, or a, a thing that really does represent me bringing my full self. And it's a scary, scary thing because it requires such vulnerability and it requires such hyper-specificity. And I've lived a pretty adventurous and in some ways complicated life. My first marriage, my relationship with my children. I was a very absentee father. I was on the road all the time. I was traveling all over the planet. I missed so much of their lives. I have paid and am paying a heavy price for all of those decisions. And that being said, that's the side of things that I don't like talking about, which is how I know as an artist, that's all I should be talking about. Mm, yeah. It's a very difficult. So that's why I kind of have an allergic reaction to the to the idea of bringing my quote unquote full truth. And also with respect to religion, let me say this, even some of the things I'm saying right now in this podcast to you two, about my beliefs regarding religion, those are takes that I don't necessarily feel comfortable or or at least I didn't feel as comfortable as I do now today speaking about so brashly and so like passionately and so unapologetically because I also just was still confused. Like I didn't, it's like, if this is just my opinion, then why should I just, I'm not interested in just putting my opinion on blast. Who cares? You kind of skirted over it, but the light heat framing is very important to me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think the internet is basically a bunch of heat. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm not interested in contributing toward that problem. I don't want to make more heat. I only want to make light. And that means disposable content, just being a guy putting out a thing every week. And hey, look at me. I'm an Instagram video guy. To me, I know I sound judgmental and I'm hating on people who do that. I'm not hating on people who do that. If that's your path, walk your path. God bless you. That's not how I want to operate in the game. Yeah. 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 So related to that, when you did decide that you were going to pursue comedy, and even now when you're doing shows, what was the reaction of the people closest to you when you made that decision? Hmm. I would say overwhelmingly supportive. That's yeah, great. Overwhelmingly supportive. Now, mind Mo you, by the time mom and dad too. Mom and dad were yeah. supportive as well. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Because well, you already went to you already went to law school. Yeah, That's I had true. the paper. Yeah. I had the paper. <laughs> I was also married. Yeah, yeah, I was also already married. I had a kid on the way when I quit. No, sorry, when I quit everything else and went full time, which was oh four. That would have really been the. That would have really been the only time where them chiming in would have mattered, you know, because because if I'm doing it as a hobby, it's kind of like, what do you care, right? But when it's like I'm quitting my job, I'm going to do comedy full time. That was a scary thing for all of us, right? But. Mind you, by that point, I had already done my own dot-com startup. I had turned down big law firm jobs to do that. So they had already like sat me down and been like, what, what the hell are you doing? Mm -hmm. 
Right, right. But they yeah. they they realized Uzzer was going going to follow his path. He he literally already did it with the startup thing. Yeah, I think they had, by that point, I think they had already kind of made peace with the fact that this guy is out of control, and <laughs> let, rather than try to control him, let's let's just try to support him. I guess the best we can, which for my parents meant just not saying anything to me. And then telling everybody else, yeah, he's a lawyer though, right? He's law degree. He's a lawyer. He's actually attorney. My dad still says that to people. You know, he's actually attorney. That's and I'm funny. like, cool, man. Yeah. And then they don't even know what I do. They have no, I just literally was down in Florida. They moved to Florida. I was in Tampa where they live in their house. I've told my parents maybe five to 10 times that I'm writing on a TV show now, blah, blah, blah. And then it was the same thing. So what is the program? You are what? You're well, okay, so that's that's actually something I do want to ask about because one episode in Tarami, and I, my take is literally fresh, 24 hours, and I intend to finish the show because it it hit me in a way that we literally just had Mira Jacob on the podcast who who wrote arguably one of the most important pieces of the Indian American experience, in my opinion, up there with the namesake, up there with Never Have I Ever, up there with Wow. So okay. Like I just told Rajiv this, and I was like, Rajiv, drop what you're doing, read this book. But anyway, my point is that's how this show is hitting me. It is defining, not in an absolute terms, but in the nuanced terms, in a very beautiful, subversive kind of way. So my question is, so your parents at some point probably consumed your comedy. Cool. One thing, oh, he's telling jokes. Ha ha ha. But you're digging at some things in the show that, and not just you, to be fair, it's everyone involved, including Rami, and I'm assuming the rest of the writer's room that you work in. You're presenting things about Islam, not or the community, I should say the community and the culture that people don't, it's kind of like when Chappelle was presenting things in the black community, it was like, whoa, why are you presenting it this way? Even though he's speaking a truth. So I guess my question is, your parents in Tampa or the community around you, not your friends, how are they reacting to some of this? I would say that with respect to the Rami show in particular, because Rami, the Rami show is, we hope anyway, a crystallization of Rami Youssef's creative vision. And so really in that context, the role I'm playing is not to advance any agenda of mine or any vision of mine. Rather, it is to help bring his to life. Fair. That's fair. That's fair. And so in that context, so much of that show is driven and based on, driven by and based on Rami's very specific and unique kind of experience as well, as well as worldview, as well as relationship with religion. And then I would say that when, by the time it gets made and packaged and put out and marketed and now it's on the Hulu platform, right? So now you're seeing this very corporate cleaned up version of what he's trying to say and do, the challenge is often is something lost during that process of, for lack of a better word, corporatization for sure. purposes. But, okay, let's use parent logic though. My parents for the longest time couldn't understand what I did, but they knew that I worked on herbal essences or Pantene, right? And they would come to me and react about the commercials. Like, well, I, I know the guy who made it. Yeah, I was kind of in the room. And so how do your parents wrap their head around, oh, he's working on this show that does these things? Well, the thing is, I don't even think my parents know. They haven't seen the show or if they have, they, yeah, they don't, I don't know, they, so I sat them down and showed them that episode I co-wrote. And then by the time I saw them again, that was in November of last okay, year. Okay, okay, okay. When I saw them again, they didn't understand that I was showing them 
the episode that I co-wrote. They were just wait, the, what that program with the, I'm like, yeah, the, the guy with the black, the black shake. I'm like, yeah, I wrote that with Rami. Oh, okay. So, you know, what's, what, what what's for dinner? Could not care. <laughs> so my parents are the wrong metric, right? Now, that being said, you asked me, how are the people around me? The, the, community, the community, the community. Yeah, the yeah. community. I mean, I think that even the phrase, the community, I realized is fake because the reality is there are American Muslim communities. Your community. I'm sorry, your community. Right? Well, that's the thing. I belong to a lot of different communities. That's my point. That's fair. That, that's a broad question. So, that's- So different communities have reacted differently. And I think that Arab Muslims in general are way more comfortable talking about sex and sexual health and, and just sex in society and making sexual jokes or whatever. Whereas South Asian Muslims, especially the conservative ones, tend to be very like proper and that is for behind closed doors only. It's impolite. It's the British colonialism in us. <laughs> Well, it's interesting. Where did it come from? Again, who controls the rhythm of the algorithm? (laughs) Where did these ideas get come from? Where do ideas? I'm obsessed with this. Where do ideas come from? So I don't even know if I can attribute that that one necessarily to British. I'd like to blame things on. (laughs) It's it's easier. It's just easier. It's just easier. They say the sun never set on the British Empire because even God didn't trust the burning. (laughs) (laughs) So. So <laughs> suffice it to say that there's been a wide range of reactions. Well, Sharon, we just lost all of our British fans. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> true. All and, two of them. Uh, Sorry, and, Nigel. Uh, and and Rami and Rami, by the way, he has made a lot of, in my judgment, kind of bold, creative choices with that show that are meant to be provocative. Sure, of course. Gets you thinking. And so it's like if you try to provoke, you know, guess what? You're going to get a response. Well done. You provoked. So there's a lot of interesting reactions people have. But I would say that by and large, to me, the people who matter, there's a great principle. I have probably a dozen or two dozen controlling principles in my life. One of them is be who you are. Say what you feel. Because those who mind don't matter. And those who matter don't mind. Dr. Seuss. (laughs) Words to live by. You are so deep. <laughs> it's not me. It's no, not- no, Theodore Giesel. Theodore Giesel. Yeah, he just got he just got canceled, right? For eh, just a few partially, of his books. Partially canceled for his racism. I'm trying to work on a joke about how racism is so evil, but so hilarious. Can we talk about evil? Because <laughs> I, I want to ask something. You said again, doing my homework, really stuck with me. You talk about the devil in a good way. <laughs> Sorry, that, should, that things to be taken out of context. Some Fox News. <laughs> Don't tell Lil Nas X. <laughs> no, <laughs> I got my Air Maxes right here, brother. No, you talk about the fallacy of all or nothing, and that the role of the devil is to inflict doubt. I loved that, and I'm not religious. Very clear, but I literally stopped in my tracks as I was going for my walk, listening to this podcast you did with another friend, a Muslim friend, I believe, and. Can you talk about that? The fallacy of all or nothing, the devil's role in inflicting doubt? Wow, what a big question and a great question, man. I got to pray for this one. Speaking about these matters is if I had what's called adab, you know, good etiquette, proper etiquette with the tradition, with the knowledge from the tradition, the answer is that I should just excuse myself and say this is beyond my pay grade. That being said, in this context, it's sort of like, well, this knowledge is, it's kind of like 
what I was saying earlier about meeting Sheikh Hamza Yusuf and then him unlocking for me this whole universe, this oceanic universe of classical and traditional knowledge. And by the way, not just Islamic knowledge, right? The Hindu tradition, the Buddhist tradition, the getting to the Yeah, 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 of course. These are just oceanic bodies of knowledge. So the fact that it's weird to me that, that that's all out there. But I'd rather go on Clubhouse and listen to some VCs talk about NFTs. It's just a <laughs> what a waste of human existence. I one hundred thousand percent agree. This is, and I'm I'm part of the problem. To your point earlier, like yeah, you know who controls the rhythm of the who controls the rhythm of the algorithm? We all do, right? Who's part of the problem? We all are. So I'm not any better or worse than anybody else that I can. What I've learned from the spiritual masters is every ugly attribute I see in any other person is in me. It's the classic thing of when you hear your voice on the answering machine, yeah. right? It's like, oh, oh, it's so gross. Yes, yes, yes. No, but there, I want to direct the question into, because we're airing this episode with a number of other Muslim American guests for Ramadan, and some of it is to illustrate there's a misconception Maybe I'm wrong in saying it's a misconception about Islam is it's kind of all or nothing. And I think my issue is with a lot of religions being all or nothing. And when you said that, that literally challenged my assumptions about religion, is that it's a fallacy. And so as a Muslim, can you talk about that that fallacy of all or nothing? Yes, I'll try it. I, I like your framing. As, as never, best you can, as best you can. Yeah, I, I never framed it as all or nothing, but I like that framing. Basically, I will say this, right? I'm sure that you you and many of your listeners must be familiar with Joseph Campbell's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The Monomyth, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And Hero with a Thousand Faces. So religion is just another set of stories, as far as I can, just trying to zoom out and look at it objectively. When we talk about this idea, the idea of religion, ultimately it's just a, a set of stories that are also like mythology and other- That are told and repeated. Or whatever. Yeah, they're just, they're just stories meant to try to tell- teach something or share some some information or some knowledge, point to something, right? And symbolic meaning is so important because once you understand what storytelling is, and by the way, to get even more abstract, what is language? This is one of the, I, I have a lot of like intuitions about like, wait, time out. How are we not talking about this topic? Because this seems like a fundamental foundational topic, which if it remains unresolved, how are we even talking about anything else? And language is one of those topics because it's like, yo, you do realize that the, what they call now the hardest problem for science is what they call in scientific speak natural, basically, the, or what is the origin of human language, right? What is the, I'm just getting interesting uh, text in the middle of this. I'm sorry, I got distracted. <laughs> what is the origin of human language? Literally, here, here's what's happening. Right. Somewhere in the world, your friend's ears are like, oh my God, others talking about the origin of language again. Basically, yeah. <laughs> it's how it feels. So what is the origin of human language? Where did language come from? And by the way, because that's related to the question of does language have objective meaning? Oh boy. Because <laughs> I think about it, if it doesn't, we're, if we're, we're, just, really, we're just a bunch of grunts. Yeah, yeah we're, we're just, a bunch of animals. We're, if you accept this science, now I'm not going to call it scientific. I'm going to yeah, call yeah, it but scientific. Also, hang on, hang on. I'm going to Spider Man you. To appreciate Spider Man, you just have to suspend your disbelief that, yeah, a kid can get bitten by a radioactive spider. I don't need to know how it works, but it sure is cool that he can walk up walls. So it's, I hear you. I, I genuinely do hear you. Like, I, I respect that take, but it's also like, okay, but then. If you if you take it one step further and say, and therefore now I'm going to worship Spider Man. I didn't say that. 
I'm more no, of a, I'm saying I'm more if of a you, Batman if, guy. But no, 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 I'm um, saying if a person did, then it would be like, wait, time out. Now I need to know more. Where did this is this? Well, really- it's fate. It's fate. It's fate. It's fate that the, it's fate that gravity works. Like exactly. I do want to. I do want to understand the fundamental forces, the strong force and the weak force, and all that. Yes, stuff. but I don't need to do it to accept that gravity is a thing. But what if you're in a simulation? Yeah, Elon's matrix theory, which it's not Elon's theory; it's someone else's, right? Like, no, it's, yeah, it's, I know it's, uh, it's uh, Bostrom's or Eric Bostrom's uh, simulation yeah. theory. I read a paper; it's brilliant, and there's no cogent. It is a cogent worldview, and this is why I say I'm borderline insane because solipsism to me is a very cogent philosophical worldview. Like, how do how can I be certain anything is real outside of my experience? But that's no way of living. How can I have epistemic certainty? Well, again, we all have our own private thoughts, but then we figure out how to operate in the world. Exactly. And and we put on the we put on the face for everybody else. But I think a lot of people are riddled with fundamental. This will get us back to the doubt question. Fundamental doubts about the nature of reality, and hence people are fucking depressed and going crazy and suicidal and like, what is happening here? What is real? Yeah. So we have reached a such a hyper crisis mode, epistemic uncertainty. What is real? Now we're in an age of post post fake news. Post truth, right? Yeah. Post truth, yeah. they call it alt facts. What the fuck is an alt fact, bro? <laughs> There's either fact. A fact by definition means it is objectively true. So the moment you've opened the door to subject multiple subjective objective truths. Now, just we're inside a complete philosophical soup that means nothing. And back to language, does language have objective meaning or not? Otherwise, we're just animals grunting sounds. I'm grunting through some freaking advanced magical technology right now that's going into space and it's going to somehow become this thing. And we're just assuming that the people listening are going to understand what we're talking about. Why? Where, where are those assumptions coming from? So to me, all of this is to put on the mic under the microscope back to the doubt thing. There Without it is inescapably true that every human being who accepts on some level, consciously or unconsciously, that this experience we're having right now has some objective reality to it. Implicit in that to me is that that person believes in God, in a higher power, which, by the way, is what simulation theory points to. Ultimately, it is pointing to a naturalistic, monotheistic worldview because somebody must have made the game. If we're inside a simulation, who coded the simulation? If we're be, if we ourselves have been coded by some advanced AI in the year we think we're in 2021, but we're actually in you know 50,000, 50 million, or whatever. Well, guess what? Somebody still had to make those robots and that AI that made the whole thing. So it all points to some source, which is actually what all religion is saying: the Hindu religion, the Muslim religion, yeah. the Jewish. Yeah. We're all saying the same thing. Yeah. So all of this is to say. This got me to realize that actually religion itself and the idea of multiplicity of faith traditions is just a bunch of different exoteric expressions of one singular esoteric ultimate timeless universal truth, which is that the origin of being, back to the first question, is being itself, necessary being. There is the nature of being is that being always has been and it did not come into existence the word existence is so important in english because i think that existence versus being clears up so much confusion existence in english comes from the latin root existere which means to come into being in other words to stand out from a state of non-being 
which means the entire created universe, the entire multiverse, us and everything in this world, all of it is created. It came into being. It is existence. And before it, there was just being itself, necessary being. And that is what I mean when I say I believe in God necessary being. Call him Bhagwan, Ishvara, Vishnu, Yahweh, the uncreated creator of the universe, the unmoved mover, the grand architect of the universe, the one, the source, the only one, the first, the last, the loving, the kind, the merciful, the forgiving, million, infinite names, all talking about the same uncreated creator, the being that is necessary being without which existence itself is impossible. And this to me became so powerful because once a human being, a human heart submits to this truth that of course I believe there's a higher power. Of course there's an uncreated creator behind the whole thing. Then anything that challenges that is basically the devil trying to sow doubt. And doubt is, there's a beautiful epistemic principle. Certainty can never be overcome by doubt. Certainty can never be overcome by doubt. What you know in your heart, in your bones and in your balls or in your ovaries is what you know is the truth. What you know is real and objectively true. No amount of doubt can ever, nobody can convince you you don't love your mom. You just know it. It's a starting proposition. It's a first principle. So by analogy, all of religion to me is kind of like so gets so muddled. But if you boil the whole thing down, what is the essential proposition that all of religion is is proposing? God is. And then you can either assent to that, you're a believer, or you don't, you're a non-believer. And it's as simple as that. What do you think your kids would say they've learned from you? How to not be. (laughs) 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 How to... You'd have to ask them, man. I, I honestly, I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure they have. I have a complicated relationship with my children right now because we're going through a very. My friends would ask me when I was going through my my divorce a couple of years ago. It's like, you know, how are things, man? Are you all right? And I'd be like, man, my life has turned into a Charles Dickens novel. Because every day I wake up and it feels like it is the best of times. It is the worst of times. So there's been incredible growth and beautiful things that have come into my life for which I'm infinitely grateful. And it's come at a cost with respect to my relationship with my children right now that is just really, really taxing and emotionally difficult. So that being said, I don't know. I think that they would, you know, what have they learned from me? I mean, their mom is a genius, by the way. She is brilliant. So they learn way more from their mom than they have from me. In their world, I'm just this lazy, never showed up to their stuff, missed all their games, made promises all the time and broke them. Just they don't have a favorable opinion of me because I let them down so much. So they probably, yeah, I was not even joking. Like what they would learn from me is sort of like, don't be a hypocrite. If you could talk a big game, you better walk an even bigger game. Otherwise, you're just part of the problem. Do you ever talk to them about faith and religion? I've had conversations. Yes, yes, I have had conversations with them about faith and religion, but not really. Like I I let it come from them, or I try anyway, because I know that I always had an allergic reaction to religion sort of being pushed down my throat or whatever. And as their father, I mean, honestly, I just care about one thing when it comes to religion, which is that 
this certainty I just spoke of a moment ago, that you are a creation of God. Don't ever get it twisted. You will die and go into a hole in the ground. And I believe, based on religion, but this part is you got to fill in the blanks with an actual religious teaching. But metaphysically, there's just no questioning that you are, you didn't create yourself. And that's it. That, that is faith. Submitting to that is, from an Islamic worldview, that's actually the whole game. Just to submit to that fact that there is a power much bigger than me that made this whole thing. Then you, beyond that, Muhammad is the prophet of God, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and all that. That's all the story, and that you can that people will be talking about that till the end of time. Yeah, Reza Aslan has a really good book. Yeah, it's a couple of really good books, but one is called "No God But God." It unpacks the faith a little bit more. Sorry to nerd on you about that, but yeah, no, I'm very familiar with that. Well, I was just talking about him earlier today because he's got a show. He's got a new controversial TV show coming out today on CBS called- Is it heat or is it light? No comment. I haven't seen the show yet. (laughs) Fair point, fair point, fair point. No comment. No comment. Azar, I want to talk to you for so much longer, and I hope this opens the door for future conversations. I've been here- Oh, man. I'm so grateful. I always end every podcast I do pretty much with an apology. (laughs) Do not apologize. yeah, you just talk. I mean, you, you, it's like I'm a, I'm the Energizer Bunny. You just push a button, and I just start talking, and I don't know how to shut up. So I, 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 well, I, I, I want to say something. It's worth noting. After you and our friend Rajiv got back from India, you guys toured India on the State Department's dime, I think, and that's a compliment. Lucky, lucky. so cool. Yeah. But I remember <laughs> I got a text or a call from him. He was like, and he wouldn't stop talking about some of the late night conversations and arguments you guys got into. And he's like, it reminds me of some of our discussions when both him and I used to live in Cincy. Rajiv put this question in my head that I never forgot, that I still think about actually. Because Rajiv is obsessed with epistemology. How do you know, right? Yep. Everything yep. that you claim to know, but ultimately, how do you know you know? Yeah, yeah. Right? And it's a profound, perplexing, never ending exploration about the nature of knowledge actually how and and it, and it opens up like what does it mean to know and also what are the ways of knowing this is something i learned from the spiritual masters that part of our problem in the modern age that's why i opened the podcast by saying i'm not a modernist modernism is a is a perversion and an inversion of traditionalism capital t and these are two distinct diametrically opposed worldviews I'll give it to you in the most poetic way I can, and, th- and then I guess we should jump off. This is a good place to end, which is like, so what is the difference between modernism and traditionalism? What do we mean by that? Well, modernism, the philosophical school that kind of undergirds the entire modern age and all the content and the academia and all the policy discussions and the debates that are popular across the earth, the identity movements, all of it is built on this fundamental philosophical system that has a set of assumptions built into it. And its starting proposition is what? That all we can know, again, knowing, right, with certainty is true, is that which can be comprehended by the five senses. So it represents an obsession with materialism and matter. It represents empirical, an obsession with empirical knowledge, only that which can be scientifically studied, proven in the laboratory through biology or chemistry or physics or pure mathematics. They will allow for pure mathematics, even though it's not empirical. But this is basically their starting point. Modernists believe that that's what we can know with certainty. And for the modern man or modern woman, the philosophical question becomes, yeah, is there a soul? Is there a God? Is there life after death? These are relegated to being philosophical notions or debates. 
And this very notion represents such a fundamental perversion, inversion, and distortion of ultimate reality. Because for millennia, across every human civilization, across every part of the earth, the starting point was the exact opposite. Capital T traditionalism, which is, of course, God is real. Of course, we have souls. Of course, there's life after death. Of course, there's a world of demons and angels and spirits. Yeah, that guy on the hill told me. Yeah, yeah the philosophical <laughs> question is, the philosophical question is for, for traditional man, is this shit real? Are we in a simulation? How are we floating on a ball in the middle of space right now? Animals grunting into microphones and recording it. What the hell are you talking about? How is this possible? How is this real? So this perversion that modernism has so, it has led to such, it has had so many horrible knock-on effects. And I would argue that the, the epistemic uncertainty we were talking about earlier, that fuels so much depression and suicidal thoughts among modern human beings. The solution to it is a spiritual solution, and people are looking for answers in all the wrong places. You can masturbate to porn all you want. You will never fill the hole in your soul, which is begging for you to acknowledge that you did not make yourself. Wow. I feel like I heard your mic drop just now. (laughs) (laughs) So in the traditional worldview, they have four ways of knowing. Empirical knowledge is the lowest way of knowing things. Then you have pure reason where mathematics is, then you have inspiration, and then you have revelation. And this is now introducing some ordered system of priority, because otherwise the classical debate within religion is reason versus revelation. Should should revelation submit to reason, or should reason submit to revelation? Now you're getting into a whole other sophisticated discussion around, well, what do we mean by revelation? How do we know it's reliable? Is it preserved? Et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of rabbit holes here. I guess we can leave it here, but I would love nothing more than wait, to wait, wait, wait. We're not saying goodbye yet because oh, you're, you're not going to get off that easy. I thought you were acting. Every guest has to sit through a speed round, and you too, you're not getting off that easy. So, what do you think, Roman? Do you think he's ready for speed round? Of all of our guests we have had in the past year, there is nothing about Uzzer <laughs> that makes me think he is ready for a speed round. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I'm sorry. I, you caught me in a bit. I, I also was just on another Zoom that went long that was just opening up. All the, I feel bad now. No, but no, yeah. man. Oh, it's so it's so good. Have I ruined the podcast? No, um, man. You did not break this thing. No. But to be clear, no one is ever ready for speed round. Yeah. But <laughs> okay, okay. I have faith in you, though, Ezra. I have faith in you. What is one thing about you that no one expects? <laughs> and it's speed round, okay? Speed round. Oh, shit. Okay. What is it no one expects? That I am a big fan of 90 Day Fiance. Of everything okay. you have said, nothing has left me more speechless than that, my friend. I know. <laughs> what is a book or a movie? That has characters that you relate to. A book or a movie has characters I relate to. <laughs> 90 Day Fiance. The White Tiger. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The White Tiger. Oh. Oh, cool. Nice. Yeah, that's a good one. What is your favorite mom dish? Favorite mom dish is probably my mom's tie. It's a tie between chicken biryani and karahi gosh. What is your least favorite food? Least favorite food in the whole world? Cuisine or a dish? Yes. <laughs> if someone put it in front of you, you'd be like, yeah. "Hell no!" What do you? And, and, and you're not allowed to say sea urchin. If another guest yeah. says sea urchin, I mean, bro. Besides, I'm a Muslim, so I don't eat pork. But besides pork, I'll pretty much eat anything. Well, no, but the, I guess it's what's the food you have veto rights on? 
When it shows up, you can be like, nah, sorry, auntie. No, can't. Oh, among daisy food? Anything, anything. Anything. I, I just told you, pork. I mean, that's only restri- – I don't eat pork. I, I eat anything else, man. I, I'm fat. I love food. <laughs> I- so there's no food that you don't like? Off the dome? I mean, maybe like licorice, okay? Let's say licorice. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Licorice is an evil thing. I'm sorry. I didn't oh, oh, hang it on, is, hang on. It's so gross. It's our, gross. That takes a lot of Vietnamese food off the table for you, my friend. Star anise. Oh, I mean. Well, okay. I think he's thinking licorice like licorice candy because I feel the same way about black licorice candy, but I'll eat any kind of Vietnamese food. I so the flavor, see. like the flavor is different, I think, when you, mm. when it's actually right. cooked into something. All right. I'm going to allow it. I accept. It. I accept that answer. Who's someone out there that you would want to interview on a podcast? Oh, man. So obviously you have to be living, right? No. No, could be dead. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. We get into some sci-fi shit on this we're, podcast. Yeah, man. we're living in the Matrix, man. Everyone's alive and dead. I would want to interview a guy called Mansoor Al-Hallaj. <laughs> yeah, I, look uh, yeah hang on. Yeah, g- g- give me the cliff notes. <laughs> Mansoor Al-Hallaj, he was a great Sufi mystic who was ultimately executed for his excited utterances while he was in a spiritual intoxicated state. Okay. He's just a dope, incredible, studied like magic, and he's just a really interesting person. All right. All right. Other last question. What does being a modern minority mean to you? Speed round, remember. Speed round. <laughs> what does being a modern minority mean to me? It means finding inner peace while recognizing that I'm living within a paradox. That makes a lot of sense. Azar, I have been wanting to have this conversation or this type of conversation with you for years. I cannot thank you for (laughs) making the time for this and and kind of sharing your stories and experiences with with us. and I feel like I didn't, man. I feel, I'm sorry. I'm so, I feel sad. I feel like I let you guys down. Oh, no, No, you didn't. Not at all. This was fantastic. Really? You're not just saying you, that? You opened up, yeah, you opened up our minds and our hearts and literally my mind is blown. Wow. Okay. Well, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> I'm very grateful to you for reaching out. I meant what I said when I first replied to your to the email, Raman, which is a brother of Rajiv's is a brother of mine. So thank you for having me and I'm very grateful. Well, we hope we can have another conversation one day soon. I hope so. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? 
Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.